Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, last month marked the 20th anniversary of the debut of The Sopranos. Uh, as our next guests note, it was January 9th, 1999, when a mobster walked into a psychiatrist's office and changed TV history. Certainly, The Sopranos was a hugely influential show, obviously a critically acclaimed show, but really paved the way for what a lot of people have referred to as the golden age of television. The Sopranos would be an easy sell today for any cable network or any streaming service, Uh, but it was somewhat revolutionary at the time. HBO uh, already had a reputation for being edgy. Uh, it It was a risk for them. Certainly, it's a show that highlights one of the greatest acting uh, of any TV show ever. One of the greatest performances ever. And James Gandolfini and what he did with the lead character on that program. Uh, But the writing, the cast, all of it makes it a show worth celebrating. And a show worth revisiting. HBO's been running uh, the series to mark the anniversary of its debut. And it, it definitely holds up. It is incredible television. Uh, so to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the show's debut, uh, TV critics Matt Zoller-Seitz and Alan Seppenwall, who worked together at New Jersey's The Star Ledger, have reunited and written a new book called The Sopranos Sessions, a collection of recaps, conversations, essays covering the series, and also a series of new long-form interviews with series creator David Chase. So joining us to talk more about the book are the authors. We have with us Matt Zoller-Seitz. He's a TV critic for New York Magazine. Matt, thanks for joining us here. It's a pleasure to be here. And we've got Alan Sevenwall, who's chief TV critic with Rolling Stone. Alan, thanks for joining us as well. My pleasure, too. All right, what's interesting, and I guess you now both work for different uh, media outlets, but uh, you started off working together uh, for, of course, a big newspaper in New Jersey at the time that this, this show was airing. Is that right? Yeah, we wrote for the Star Ledger of Newark, New Jersey, which became famous because of the show as the newspaper at the end of Tony's driveway, and it was shot in our circulation area and set in our circulation area. And one of our editors had, in fact, gone to college with James Gandolfini, so there were a lot of different connections we had to the show, and it was sort of like being, you know, the rock critics for the Liverpool Daily Post in 1962 when the Beatles were coming up, you know, right place, right time. Right. Was there some deeper significance to the show in New Jersey? I mean, it was obviously a show that was beloved uh, well outside of New Jersey, but was there a deeper significance within the state? I don't think there'd ever been a show that shot on location in New Jersey constantly in the way that that did, unless they were faking somewhere else, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, where, where This was a show where New Jersey was actually New Jersey, and you saw places that you were familiar with. And, you know, I... I wrote stories all over the state. I did features in addition to the television coverage, and and it was always a thrill seeing someplace that I recognized and in many cases had actually been to. And Alan actually grew up in the state, so I'm sure it was even deeper for him. Yeah, I had spent all these years watching many, many stories about the mob and otherwise set in New York, but New Jersey was always, you know, an afterthought or the butt of a joke, you know, what exit are you at? And suddenly here was this thing that was so New Jersey, and I'd been to these stores, and I'd eaten at these restaurants, and there was just an enormous amount of excitement about it from a lot of different people. Why do you think they set the series in New Jersey? Because as you say, I mean, it might have been more logical to, to set it in New York. But David Chase was from New Jersey. It's, 
deeply autobiographical show. It was about the people he'd grown up with, about his relationship with his mother, who Tony's mother was modeled upon, uh, a lot of different stories he'd encountered. And I think there's also a, a certain degree of Tony feeling inadequate, feeling less than, because he's not the godfather. He's not the mob boss of Brooklyn or Queens or Manhattan. He's the strip mall don. And so that's one of the many different ways in which, you know, his ascendancy to the throne is never quite satisfying enough for him. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I mean, you look now and you look at how much TV has changed since then. You know, greenlighting a show like this today would be a, a no-brainer. I think there'd be, you know, networks clamoring for, you know, fighting amongst each other and Netflix and others for a show like this. Was this a difficult sell even for HBO at the time? It was not. Um, I don't know. That's kind of a tricky question because, uh, you know, HBO at the time was not known for dramas in the way that it is now. I mean, mm-hmm. there had been dramas on the network, including Oz, which debuted a couple of years before. But it wasn't a it wasn't a popular success and it wasn't a critical phenomenon on the on the order of something like The Sopranos. And it, one of the things that I think struck me and Alan both as we were writing this book is if you look back at the show like now there are people who are associated with the show like you know james gandalf the late james gandalfini and edie falco uh and you know lorraine bracco and and michael imperioli and if you saw these people on the street you would recognize them from the sopranos but the best known person in that cast was lorraine bracco and she was in a supporting role i mean the idea of casting uh, two relative to the public unknowns like edie falco and james gandalfini in a show like this was something that could only have happened in HBO, on HBO in the 90s. Like, even now, that doesn't happen as much. Like, you get a show like uh, Succession, you have some great actors on there that you, you maybe haven't heard of before, but Brian Cox is the star. You know, that's a, they, they get somebody who's big, who's known, to anchor the show, and this was very much kind of HBO's uh, uh, way of doing things, and I don't know that it really can, has continued to the effect, uh, to the way that it, it did then. Yeah, and it needed to be HBO, didn't it? I mean, it, it, it needed to be as, as raw as it was for it to be as, as effective. Yeah, Chase talked with us about the conversations he'd had with traditional broadcast networks about the show. You know, CBS said, well, we're fine with the violence, but we don't want him to be seeing a psychiatrist. It was like the show just broke all of these rules that TV had governed itself by for 50 years beforehand. You know, you can't have an unlikable main character. You can't have ultra-serialized storytelling. You can't confuse the audience. You have to explain everything. You have to dumb it down. And the show did none of that. It violated all these rules, and it became a big hit. But only HBO was there to allow them to do that at the time. There's an extent to which this entire show is David Chase's revenge against against the rules of network television, which is, you know, how he had operated for decades. Like, he started out on the Rockford Files, and, and probably the closest he got to kind of an auteur kind of mentality series was something like I'll Fly Away. Uh, and he had never had the run of the field in the way he did with The Sopranos. And there's almost something punk rock about the way that that series, as it goes along, like very deliberately teases the audience and denies the audience what it expects and what it wants all the way up to that final four minutes. Yeah. You know, whether it's a TV show, an album, a book, you know, sometimes it takes the passing of time for us to appreciate how amazing it was and for it to cement a legacy. But I mean, even then, this was obviously a, a renowned show. Was it obvious at the time that we had something this special? It took a little um, way into the first season for that to happen. You know, the early reviews were positive, but not overwhelmingly so. And you know, no one was declaring this was you know the great work of art 
of the last 25 years, which the New York Times did after the first season. But it wasn't really until you got to the episode where Tony takes his daughter Meadow on the college tour and he winds up strangling the informant oh, yeah. where people started saying, oh, my God, have you seen this HBO show? And But pretty much from there, it's turned into this word-of-mouth phenomenon, and the audience built and built. Uh, ironically, the fourth season, which most people don't like that much, was the most watched. But it you could tell pretty early on that this was going to be something extraordinary. Would you both agree, then? Would you both state that it is the greatest TV show of all time? I don't know about that, but it's certainly up there. I mean, you know, it, it, it's a show like my definition of a really great show is a show that where you have to acknowledge how influential it was, uh, even if you didn't like it. And I think The Sopranos absolutely qualifies. What's funny is we previously collaborated on another book called TV, the book where we ranked the 100 greatest American shows of all time. And Sopranos finished second to The Simpsons in our rankings, but originally there was a tie and Matt and I took different sides of the debate, and Matt argued for The Sopranos, and I argued for The Simpsons, and The Simpsons won out. And having rewatched all of The Sopranos for this book, I'm starting to question myself a little bit, because holy cow, does it hold up. Well, it really does. I mean, HBO's, <laughs> the HBO's been running this, this series. Uh, you know, they certainly did a lot last month, and I was watching old episodes. And yeah, I mean, it's, it, it doesn't feel aged. It, it feels as fresh as ever. And it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's compelling. It's amazing, and it, it does hold up. I had a cause to go back and watch some old gangster movies, you know, just as context for the Sopranos Film Festival, which I programmed at IFC Center in January. And watching uh, movies like James Cagney and White Heat and and Public Enemy, um, I feel like the Sopranos is in that weight class in the sense that even though it's a period, it's already a period piece for a lot of people, and it's going to be even more of a period piece in like another 20 years. I think the characters hold up. I think the story holds up. And I think the architecture of the show holds up. And it's it's a kind of thing where we're going to have to perform an act of translation at a certain point, you know, because technology goes out of style, culture goes out of style, clothes go out of style. Um, but the core of it, I think, is very solid. Do, do do any of the strengths stand out to you in, in the sense that is it James Gandolfini's performance that, that stands out? Is it the writing that stands out? Is it the depth, you know, the, the amazing way they fleshed out and gave backstories to so many of the characters? Uh, was it the cinematography, the way the show shot? Do any of those things stand out above the others in, in either of yeah. your view? I would say all of them are extraordinary, but I, going back and rewatching the show to write the essays for this book, Gandolfini was the thing that really leapt off the screen. And some of that is just because he's unfortunately not here anymore. But a lot of it was just how great he was. And I think we knew it at the time, but in the years since the show ended, there have been all these other great shows inspired by it, like Mad Men and Breaking Bad. Uh, And you look at the people in those shows and you say, all right, well, we'll make some sort of TV Mount Rushmore and we'll put Gandolfini's face on there and Brian Cranston's face on there and John Hamm's face and someone else's face. And I went back and watched the show. No, no. Gandolfini gets his own mountain. That's how great he is compared <laughs> to everybody else who's ever been on TV. Yeah. Would you agree? For me, for, for me the thing that, that stood out on rewatch was how uh, cohesive every season of the show was. Not just at the level of story of what happens next and who it happens to, but also at the level of symbolism and theme. And uh, the way that every season of the show is organized ultimately around the psychology of Tony and a lot of the antagonists that he faced during the course of the show, whether it's his mistress, Gloria Trillo, in season three, who eventually turns against him and who kind of symbolizes the return spirit of his, of his then-dead mother, 
or somebody like Tony B, the cousin played by Steve Buscemi, who went to prison for a crime that uh, Tony would have gone to prison for, too, had he been present for it. It's almost like Tony is doing manifestations, a battle with manifestations of Tony that have somehow gotten loose and are running around in the world. It's really interesting. It's almost sort of it's kind of posed right on the edge of real and unreal, and it never quite commits to one or the other, which is why there's an eerie undertone to a lot of the show. And that's something I don't think really anybody was commenting on at the time. And in fact, I myself wasn't really commenting on it. It's something that's buried very deep in the mix, I would say. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the, the finale for a second. And I, I vividly remember it was, I was watching it on a recorded uh, VHS tape. And I had this moment of panic at the end. I thought that the tape had, had dropped off. I didn't understand what had happened. The ending was very polarizing. And there's obviously a lot of theories about what, it, what happened or what it was supposed to symbolize. As David Chase revealed his, his hand at all? Has, has he tipped his hat either way about what it was supposed to be? Well, when we, t when we interviewed him, um, in sort of typical Sopranos fashion, we planned to talk about the ending in the last of our seven interviews, and instead it came up one interview early, you know, spontaneously. And we were talking about <laughs> something else, and then Chase randomly used the phrase death scene to talk about the finale, and, you know, our, our eyes bugged out a little bit. And then when we called him on it, he explained that the death scene had actually been a different ending he'd written altogether involving Tony, you know, going to New York to plead for peace with the New York mob. And he changed his mind and he did this instead. But when we talked about the finale, he did not answer exactly what happened because I don't think he's interested in that. And I don't think that's the interesting answer to the question anyway. But we did talk a lot about sort of, you know, the fragile nature of our mortality and how we are all here on loan and that loan can be called in at any moment and he was trying to capture that feeling of you know how temporary all of this is and whether or not you think tony dies in the ice cream parlor whether or not you think meadow dies or, or nobody dies that's what the scene is about i think what do you make of the theory and, and i've seen it advanced a couple different times that that it was the audience, the viewer that was getting whacked, that, that we took the, the shot to the head, that we were too close to all of it. I mean, is that, is that fanciful thinking, or did David Chase maybe have that kind of jaded view of his audience by a certain point? Well, I think I might have been the first, uh, you know, if not the first, certainly one of the first critics writing about the show to advance that theory and a recap that I wrote that was posted a few hours after the finale. Um, I'm not sure I necessarily buy that anymore. I think it's a perfectly valid theory. Um, but uh, we brought it up to Chase, and he said that was not what he was going for, but he thought it was interesting. But I will say that one of the things that I found uh, really fascinating and kind of heartening about talking to David about the ending was that he, I think he really truly wants people to say what they think. I mean, I don't think that it means that he doesn't have his own idea, because I think he does. And I think he fights a constant battle not to tell us exactly what he meant. And little bits and pieces of that creep out in the interview. Um, but, uh, but I really believe that he, he comes out of this tradition of 1960s European art cinema, uh, exemplified by people like Federico Fellini and, and Michelangelo Antonioni, and uh, where you're supposed to argue about what the ending meant. You're supposed to argue about what the movie itself was about. You're supposed to have even fights in the parking lot on your way to your car. And that's where he's coming out of. Like a movie like a 2001 or, or, or Blowout or something like that, that's the spirit of that ending. And it's also the spirit of having things like uh, Polly and Christopher chasing a murderous Russian in the woods in Pine Barrens, and he disappears and you never know what happened to him. 
Well, the book is called The Sopranos Sessions, uh, marking, of course, the 20th anniversary uh, of this remarkable show. Uh, Matt Nallen, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Appreciate it. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.